0: As we saw last week Jesus has really concluded the main body of his teaching in the sermon on the mount and here he begins here through the rest of chapter 7 to call people really his audience in that day and you and I to a response the call is to enter by the narrow gate our lives are all headed in a direction and it's not that all of our lives and the lives of people around the globe are headed in a bunch of different directions. What we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount and what we'll continue to see throughout the end of this is that there really are only two directions that our lives go. And I think maybe there's some confusion about what these ways are and what the signs are that uh, that that is posted At the head of these roads. I would encourage us as we think of these two ways, one with a narrow gate and one with a wide gate, one that is broad and one that is constricted. We're going to have to talk a little bit about translation here because. it's, it's a little bit difficult in this way, but I don't think we should think of, our, of this way that Jesus is speaking of like a why in the road. It's not like our, our lives are headed in a certain direction, and then at some point we all come to this place where there's this why and we have to choose. Will we choose the broad way or will we choose the narrow way? Will we choose the, the open way or will we choose the constricted way? I think the idea here is much more like that of a huge highway. In Southern California, where I grew up, there's massive highways with seven and eight lanes on each side of the road. And I, I think we should picture a huge highway with cars lined up heading in that direction, maybe not uh, in traffic per se, I don't think that's the image that Jesus gives us, but that there is an off-ramp. There is a small change in direction that those who, uh, who desire may choose. And so our lives all start on this broad path, and the choice before us all is to stay on that path or to veer off of it. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has presented us with the standards of his kingdom. And it is absolute moral perfection. These standards are opposed entirely to the hypocritical, self-righteous, self-justifying, self-sufficient standards of the Pharisees in that day and really of you and I in this one. It's not much different for us. And so Jesus calls us to choose between one of two ways, not three ways, not four ways, just two. And he's been consistent about this, that there are two kinds of trees, good and bad, ones that bear good fruit and ones that bear bad fruit. And what we're about to see through the rest of this chapter is that there are two kinds of leaders, true and false. There are two kinds of houses that can be built on two kinds of foundations, and here there are two gates... With two paths and two destinations and two crowds. I think this idea of a simple choice between two things, it's, it's not new. Without threatening God's own sovereignty in any way, he has always called his people to choose which way they will go. Moses, at his death in Deuteronomy chapter 30, said, "I call heaven and Earth to witness against you today." That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. There are two options before them life and death, blessing and curse. And Moses encourages them to choose life. Shortly after his death, Joshua, leading the people into the promised land, says, I gave you, a, in Joshua 24, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah, battling the prophets and prophetesses of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 says, After, Afterwards, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The message God gave to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 21.8 was, uh, To this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Of course, the difficulty of what he was teaching them in John chapter 6, verses 66 and 69, it's going to matter, or 66 through 69 here, is that he was the only way. And uh, there's this large crowd that's following Jesus. And he, he tells them that he is The only way to get to heaven. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All of our lives have only two gates, two ways Two destinations and two crowds. We're not faced with a multiplicity of ways to God, nor a multiplicity of ways away from Him. Just two. John MacArthur said this, and then quoted John Stott. He says the choice is between the one and the many, the one right and the many wrongs, the one true way and the many false ways, as John Stott points out in Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen. Jesus cuts across our easygoing syncretism. Syncretism is the idea that we can import uh, pagan and worldly ways of worship into the worship of the one true God. Jesus cuts across our easygoing syncretism. There are not many roads to heaven, but one. There are not many good religions, but only one. Man cannot come to God in any of the ways that man himself devises, but only in the one way that God himself has provided. And I think John Stott gets it exactly right. And so we have to know that what Jesus puts before us in these two verses is not good people versus bad people. Not the religious versus the non-religious. Not the theist versus the atheist. Not those with some form of faith, no matter what that faith is in, versus those without faith. The contrast of these two ways that Jesus puts before us is the way that God has provided or the way that man attempts to provide for himself. There is God's way and there is our way. And we have to choose which way we will go. Last week I mentioned this when I said that there are only two religions in the world. That of human achievement, what you can do to earn for yourself, And that of divine accomplishment, what God has completed. Because as we look through the Sermon on the Mount and we see this absolute moral perfection that is required of those who would gain entrance into Jesus' kingdom, the only proper response is to look at that and go, we've all missed that already. The Pharisees were masters at lowering the bar particularly for themselves, while raising it for everyone else. Well, if you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep your word, but if you swear by the gold on the temple, then you do. It's the Pharisees' way of crossing their fingers and putting them behind their backs as they make a promise. Or, so that I don't have to take care of my parents in my old age, I can take all that I own and claim that it belongs to God. So that when they're old and need care, I can go, I'm I'm sorry, I don't have the means to do that. Let's not forget that the command to honor your father and mother was a command given to a nation of adults and children that changes as we get older Um, children are to obey their parents in the Lord but as we grow up we are still to honor our parents and they would find ways around all of this stuff and so they were masters at lowering the bar and Jesus says look I not only want to raise the bar to where it was I want to elevate it far beyond you don't have to cheat on your spouse to have an affair. You just have to look lustfully at somebody else. You don't have to actually take someone's life to be a murderer. You just have to hate somebody. Always let your yes be yes and your no, no. Remove the log from your own eye before you attempt to correct anyone else's. And what we should do when we see all of that is realize we're utter failures already. And it should lead us to a desperation for Jesus. Who, sinless and divine and human, lived this perfect life for us. Fulfilled the law for us. Lived out this righteousness for us. So that he might be treated in death like we deserve to be treated, and die for us, and be condemned for us, but also to be resurrected for us, so that we might be resurrected with him. Jesus gives us in this passage four contrasts regarding these two responses to the Sermon on the Mount. He contrasts these two responses in four ways. Let's look at them now. He first starts with wide and narrow gates. Notice that these are not uh, roads that lead to a gate, but, but gates that set you on a road. It's, it's going through a gate that leads you onto this path. The, uh, the form of this commandment, enter, notice, by the way, there is no commandment to enter the other one. You're already there, right? There's a command to enter through this gate. I think a, a beneficial image is that of a turnstile, one by one, entering through this gate. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's a really interesting thing Jesus does here. Maybe it's just me who geeks out on this stuff, so uh, indulge me for a moment if this doesn't fascinate you. But he uses an aorist imperative. Now, an aorist imperative, what is in the world is that? Well, an imperative is a commandment. He's telling us to do something. But he's not using a present tense imperative that tells us to to do something continually. It's not a call to enter continually into a gate over and over again. In fact, the aorist tense, outside of its simple usage of a past tense action, now you see why this gets really fascinating. Jesus is using a past tense to give us a command that we're supposed to do in the future. Well, in Greek, you use this aorist tense, this past tense, when you talk about entering into a state in which you will remain. This gate leads us into this road, and once we've entered through the gate, we're we're on this path where we kind of stay forever. The call is not to admire the gate. The command is to go through it. Being on a path is not optional. But this gate is. One is automatic. We'll all go through a gate. We'll all be on a path. One is automatic. One requires a choice to follow Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is the gate himself. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way onto this path. One of the difficulties of Christianity, as we see in John chapter 6, and it was difficult 2,000 years ago, and it's still difficult today, is the exclusivity of the claim of Jesus. That he is the only way. That every way doesn't get there. But the reality is, the message that we proclaim is a narrow way. We proclaim a narrow gospel. That Jesus is the gate And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. We must proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus is the only way. John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. First, Timothy 2:5: "For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. We must proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus is the only way. Secondly, we must proclaim a narrow gospel because everyone must enter alone. This is the, the turnstile that I was talking about. You cannot enter through the gate because you're a family, because of your family. If you still live with your parents and you're sitting in this room right now, pay very, very close attention to what I'm about to say. Young men and women, boys and girls, your parents cannot get you to heaven. They can teach you about who Jesus is. They can show you the way. They can lead you up to that gate. But you'll not get to heaven because your parents are church members, or because your parents are believers. You have to understand who you are. You have to understand your need for Jesus. You have to understand that it's your responsibility to choose to enter into God's rest through the person of Jesus Christ, or to continue on the path That you're already on. And just because you were born to parents who go to church does not mean you start on a different path. We all start on the same path, and you will have to choose which way you will go. But you'll not get to heaven because of your family, you'll not get to heaven because of your ethnicity, and neither will you be excluded from it. You will not get to heaven because of your citizenship. Being an American does not make you a Christian. Matthew 18, verse 3, "...Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." And so we proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus is the only way, because everyone must enter through the gate alone, and, because, and we must proclaim a narrow gospel because you can't buy your way into heaven. We saw this already in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 8, that truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. But we also see it in Luke 18, 22 and 23. When he heard this, he said to him, now this is the rich young ruler, right? who uh, is coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus hits him right in his treasures. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. His wealth could not get him into the kingdom of heaven. And so because you can't buy your way in or earn your way in, we proclaim a narrow gospel. We must proclaim a narrow gospel because we must count the cost and die to ourselves. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must proclaim a narrow gospel because entrance into this way requires repentance. What is repentance? It is turning from our sin. Again, to be very careful here, we're not separating faith in Jesus and repentance as two separate acts, the same act looked at from separate or different perspectives. On the side of faith, we look at turning away from sin and to Jesus, and we call that believing. And from the side of sin, we, we look at turning away from sin and towards Jesus, and we call that repentance. But, but this idea of faith and repentance is not like two separate things. It's, it's like saying that, that God is both God and Father, He's the same person. The and doesn't mean two separate people. Bradley is my son and his brother's brother. It's not two separate Bradleys. And faith and repentance are not two separate things. They're the same thing looked at from different perspectives. John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is... uh, I mean, you could write a massive paper. You could probably do a doctoral dissertation on the use of the word for in the English language. The for here is not with the result that sins would be forgiven. This is the for of on the occasion of. You're baptized not so that you will be forgiven. You're baptized because you have been forgiven. It is repentance that results in salvation. It is salvation that results in baptism. Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Peter, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Paul, Acts 20, verse 21, testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We preach a narrow gospel because Jesus is the only way, because we must go through by ourselves, because no family or national or ethnic identity will get us in. We proclaim a narrow gospel because we must count the cost and die to ourselves. We don't get to take our sin with us, This is a right proper sermon because I've included here a quote from Charles Spurgeon. You and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like the Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun. What gate will you go through? Will you continue on that path or will you enter by the narrow gate? The second contrast that Jesus makes is between, and this is where translation gets a little difficult, but I've given you two words here to, hope, to, to hopefully help clear, clear this up. It is the broad and constricted ways. When, when your translation says easy, it, it doesn't so much mean um, uh, not difficult. I think anybody would understand, uh, based upon an analysis of scripture, that following Jesus is difficult and sin is difficult. I had a friend who was trying to diet, and she taped a piece of paper in her refrigerator that said, Being fat is hard, dieting is hard. Choose your hard. It's pretty helpful. Sin is hard. Following Jesus is hard. It's not the same hard. It's not the same hard. But, but the, the, the idea here of easy is not that, oh, this is, this is simple. This is a, a stroll. This is, a, this is the difference between broad and constricted ways. This is the difference between one way with one path that goes one direction that you must follow and a wide path that says, well, as long as you're somewhere in the stream, you'll be all right. Interestingly, uh, noting here that that, that Jesus doesn't mention um, that these are ends in and of themselves, but they are roads to an end. They are not destinations but they are the ones that someone gets, the, the means by which someone gets to a destination. And we'll, conti- we'll consider the destinations next. But first, we're going to consider the ways or the means to that end. This really isn't the difference, as I've said, between hard and easy. It's the difference between broad and permissive and constricted and, and one way. The way of the world is permissive. Anything goes. Do anything you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Or really what our world is trying to build an entire ethic on today is consent. As long as two people consent to anything, it's okay. I don't know if it's true or not, but I saw a slew of newspaper articles uh, or not newspaper articles, but I saw a slew of online articles recently that were saying that the UN had at least a presentation for something that would make, am um, uh, trying to think of how to, how to use my language carefully here, um, that would make it permissive to have relationships with minors. This is not new, by the way. There's a lot being written in in, in academic circles about the permissiveness of this type of behavior and how it should be welcomed as a normal means of an expression of affection. This way is broad and anything goes. In contrast to that, God's way is restricted. The broad way says you can believe in anything you want and in whomever you want. The narrow way says, the constricted way says, it's Jesus' way or it's no way. Well, how is it constricted? Let's consider a few ways that this way is constricted. First off, as we've already seen, sin is simply always going to be unwelcome on this way. We must separate from our sins if we're ever going to come to God. But there are more ways than that in which the way is constricted. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, we see that this way is self-constricted. Self-constricted. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The the, the narrow way is in many ways a self-constricting way. Simply because you can do something, doesn't mean you ought to do something simply because it doesn't mean it's not wrong to do something doesn't mean it's not beneficial to do something and so we we this this way is self-constricting where we constrict ourselves of things that even though are lawful aren't helpful we see this uh even in romans chapter 14 uh verse 13 and uh 1 Corinthians 9.12, that we self-constrict against what would cause others to stumble. 1 Corinthians 9.12, if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, I'm about to. Uh, Just brace yourself. I'm going to step on everybody's toes here. 1 Corinthians 9.12 and Romans 14.13. 1 Corinthians 9.12 says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And Romans 14.13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on anyone any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. What does this mean? This means that if you are offended by the prospect of limiting your liberty for the good of someone else, you're immature in Christ. If the ultimate priority for you is the exercise of your liberty and no one, how dare they, infringe upon your rights, I'm talking spiritually here, that's immaturity. Oh, I, I can do what... The, the Bible doesn't say this is wrong. Who are you to tell me it is? And What we do, because of the way Paul writes about meat sacrifice to idols and surrendering our rights, is we look at the other person and, and we think, you're calling me to a restriction of my liberty. You must be immature. That very well may be true. But the mature response is, I will then therefore limit my liberty. Not, I will therefore then demand my liberty. And when we demand our liberty because someone else wants to restrict it, we see the speck in their eye while neglecting the log in ours. Romans chapter 14, verse 15 says that we're self-constricted by what grieves others, by anything that isn't walking in love or what destroys them. Romans 14, 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Romans 14, 19 says that we're self-constricted by what does not make for peace and mutual upbuilding. So then, uh, Romans 14, 19, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do we pursue what makes for peace? Do we refuse to make peace? Travel to the church down the road where my preferences will be met? rather than making peace with people who I need to make peace with? If I haven't stepped on your toes yet, here's the one that will. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. We're self-constricted by what is self-pleasing and not for building others up. Romans 15, 1 and 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Listen to verse one again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This passage was read in a meeting I was at, I think it was last week, and it struck me in a way it had never struck me before, or at least with a question that had never struck me before. And here was the question that came to my mind and which I asked in this meeting. Do you suppose that the average church member, not Trinity member, I'm going to make this as broad as it'll go. Do you suppose that the average church member believes that the longer they've walked with Christ, the less of a priority their preferences become? I'm not talking about matters of right and wrong. When Scripture says you must do something and not do something. But what about the style of the way that thing is done? Or some of the things associated with it? What about the ways where we place priority on a function over form or a form over function? If you don't know what that means, come see me later. We can talk about it. But, but let me ask you. Do you walk into this building on a Sunday morning with the attitude that says, every single passing week, my preferences become less important so that I can meet the needs of those who are younger in the faith? It's a narrow way, it's a self constricting way. And the constricted way is hard. John 10:10, 10, 10. But it is good. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I love that Jesus did not say here, "I came that they may have life and have it eternally." Oh, Scripture speaks often to the duration of the life that Christ provides. But here he does not speak to the duration of the life he provides. He speaks to its quality. It is eternal and abundant. Just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not wonderful. The Broadway, in contrast to this, is permissive. And I will not lie to you, at times, pleasurable Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The choice before Moses was to be identified with the suffering of the people of God or the pleasures of sin. Why did Moses make the choice he made? Because he understood that the pleasures that sin offers, they are fleeting pleasures. And Christ provides abundant life. And so we see that there are two gates and that there are two ways. One is broad and one is constricted. But there are also two ends. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction. Leads to destruction. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Where do these roads lead? One leads to life and one leads to death. The interesting thing is neither of them are, they're not marked, I won't say neither, scratch the word neither from your memory. They're not marked this way. One doesn't read life and one reads death. They both have signs out front at the gate that read life. They're both marked off as paths to heaven. They both promise great things. But one is devised by men, and one is devised by God. One is built on what you can achieve, And one is built on what Christ has accomplished. They both boast great things. But only the one marked off by God can actually deliver. And fourthly, there's big and small crowds. There's big and small crowds. The reality is that there are many on the broad way and there are few on the narrow way. I read a book recently that said if we simply present the gospel in the right way, in a way that people want to hear it, without getting in the way, everybody will believe in Jesus. But Jesus never asserted that. The reality is that believers will always be in the minority, not in the majority. Maybe there's a lesson for this, and this is not what my sermon is on today, but here's maybe the lesson we can learn from this. Truth and lies are not subject to democracy. Truth and lies are not subject to democracy. In other words, the crowd isn't always right. Exodus 23.2, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Just because something is big, Or followed by a big crowd doesn't make it good or right. To be clear, Jesus never criticizes either. He doesn't say because something's big it must be bad, but he also says just because something's big doesn't make it good. The same would be true for what is small. Both crowds will be made up of people from every language and nation and tribe and tongue. There will be rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. But what will not be there is those who sought to justify themselves. What will not be there is those nominal Christians who were Christian in name, but not in actual trusting faith. And we will not see anyone there who sought any way of entrance by means other than Jesus. The reality is we come to Jesus on his terms or not at all. Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 29 says this. This is what immediately precedes the story of the Good Samaritan, by the way. And behold, a lawyer stood up, a Pharisee stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, "'Teacher!' What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, that is, Jesus said to the Pharisee, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Love God with everything. That's the correct answer. You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Verse 29. But he, that is the Pharisee, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And this is where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not a parable about being a good person. Simply a parable that defines a neighbor. But the problem with this Pharisee is that he desired to justify himself. The crowd isn't small because the space in heaven is limited. The crowd isn't small because grace is not in abundant supply. The crowd is small because people refuse to come to Jesus. On his terms. We want him to come to us on ours. Sometimes even our most simple language denies this reality, doesn't it? How many times have we heard people say, I found Jesus? You know what I hear in my head every time somebody says, I found Jesus? I think to myself, I didn't know he was lost. He found us. After Billy Graham, Well, I don't know that this was, he wasn't there, but this was a letter written to a Melbourne, Australian newspaper by uh, somebody there in, in Melbourne. Here's what it said. After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy, as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. If I must come to him on his terms, I prefer to remain forever damned. It's not the first time I've heard things like this. I've seen people in interviews say, be asked questions like, suppose that it is correct, that Jesus is the only way, and heard respondents, famous people say, then I'd rather be damned. The response to the Sermon on the Mount, it's not to admire it for its ethics, nor is it simply to admire Jesus for his ethics even though Jesus should be admired. The point is to decide. The point is to decide which way we will go. And so I call you today, whether you've never trusted Christ or you've been saved for 50 years, which way will you go? And whom will you trust? Heavenly Father, may we trust you and not ourselves. May we trust Jesus Christ and the means provided by you through him. That we would enter through the gate of himself, his sinless life, his substitutionary and atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. May we choose our heart, knowing that one can only offer death and the other life and life abundant. Lord, for all of the young men and women and boys and girls in this room, would you lead them through that gate and down that path and grant them faith and repentance for the salvation of their souls, for their joy and happiness, both in this life and the next. And Lord, would you make us a church faithful to proclaim the narrow way, so that people might have an opportunity to hear and believe and be saved. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.